Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Sunday, May the 21st, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, bad things beginning with the letter W. I'll explain what I mean. Coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Political Daily Podcast. It is Sunday, May the 21st, 2023. Hope you are well on this Sunday. Wow, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. The day that starts a brand new week. And maybe you're working at the moment. Maybe you are doing something else at the moment as you listen to this. If you're listening to it now on this Sunday or if you're listening to this whenever you're listening to it, I do hope that you are well and that you are safe and that you and yours are doing the best that you can are and and are in a good place as we get ready to start this brand new week. Well, there's been a lot going on, as there always is in the world, and so many things I could even talk about, but I'm going to focus on one or two things, the bad things beginning with the letter W. Now, I'll, there's, I'm sure there's lots of things beginning with the letter W or any other letter of the alphabet that aren't necessarily good, as just as there are things that are good that begin with the letter W. But what I'm trying to say here, dear listeners, is that there are two things beginning with the letter W that I'm going to talk about on this episode coming up in a few minutes' time that I think you need to be aware of, and hopefully you will understand what I mean when I talk about it in more detail. But I want to start first with this past Friday, actually, really, this past Thursday evening, um, we found out, however, on Friday, all of us, you and I, dear listener, that Jim Brown passed away at the age of 87. He passed away on Thursday night in Los Angeles. Jim Brown, a person who certainly has had some not so good things happen in his life and, and, and some not so good things that he actually did, um, was someone who I think did more, much more good than bad in his life. There's no question about it. Jim Brown was, of course, an NFL footballer, Hall of Famer, the best running back that NFL has ever seen. He played for the Cleveland Browns for the Cleveland Browns in all nine years of his career. He amassed 12,312 rushing yards. That's almost a palindrome, but it's uh, symmetry, really, more so than a palindrome. 12,312 yards. That's symmetrical. But that's not the thing that I really wanted to focus on with Jim Brown. Jim Brown, more than his accolades on the field, really was someone who absolutely showed character off the field. Now, as I said, there's some things that he has done that I will never support or approve of. And definitely those things I, I am standing full square against. There's no question about it. What I want to focus on because of um, the, I think, as I said, he's done more good than not. And what I wanted to focus on here was the work he's done and what the work he did off the football gridiron with gangs. He went to lots of gangs and met with them and wanted to Well, he told them to put down their guns. He told them to stop hating each other, stop killing each other. 
and unite for the good of your people and to make the community stronger, not weaker. Because when you do kill each other in your neighborhoods, you're making your community weaker. And neither of you are benefiting from that. And Jim Brown had many a meeting with gang leaders and other gang members. And, and he did a lot of good. He was well respected in that way. Jim Brown was someone who was an activist. And he really did spend a lot of time after his very short career in football in the NFL trying to improve this world, improve the way that black men um, stood, if you will, in the world. And he was someone who I think needs to get a lot more credit in that respect than he's ever got. And so Jim Brown was a humanitarian. He had the American Foundation, which really was about self-improvement was really about getting black men to stand up and to be better and to be peaceful and respectful and to be model citizens and, and community members engaged in uplifting black people. And he really did focus on that and he believed in that. And I thought that he was someone who absolutely was committed to that um, after his career in football was over. He absolutely took big stands out there when lots of people wouldn't. And that shows you character. Of course, one of the most famous things about Jim Brown is that he convened a load of athletes and other figures as well, but lots of athletes who were very clear in their sentiments about the Vietnam War, supported Muhammad Ali in his stand against the Vietnam War, the famous meeting of Bill Russell and obviously Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and, you know, other people who I thought were very important and significant athletes as activists. This is something that was very much in vogue and has been for many a year. Um, and so... You know, I think that Jim Brown did a lot of good and uh, he spent decades trying to improve black communities, trying to make black men better. And I don't want to generalize that to all black men, but he would go to areas where black men certainly were not doing the right thing in some of the communities. And he um, really was a very important figure, Jim Brown. And, you know, Lou Alcindor was part of those meetings as well with Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown, you know, when this was all about supporting Muhammad Ali at the time, who, of course, was stripped from his uh, championships. Remember his boxing titles and um, even served time as well uh, as a conscientious objector. People forget that, Doc, uh, that uh, Muhammad Ali sp uh, served jail time for this. Because he was a principled man, principled human being. And he got lots of support from the likes of Jim Brown, who knew everybody. He knew Malcolm X. He knew Sam Cooke. There's a great movie called One Night in Miami that featured that famous meeting between all of them at Malcolm X's uh, um, uh, hotel, I believe it was, 
at the time after um, I believe a Sam Cooke concert or something, and Sam Cooke was there and and uh, Malcolm was there and Jim Brown was there and Muhammad Ali was there. I mean, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal meeting and. Um, there was a movie done on this called, as I said, One Night in Miami. Regina King directed it. And so, you know, this is, these are the things, you know, Jim Brown was someone who was a really principled person. I think one story about Jim Brown that I can mention, if I can remember off the top of my head, is that um, Art Modell, the, he's now passed away, but Art Modell, who used to be the owner of the Cleveland Browns back in the day, um, had said to Jim Brown, look, you know, you need to uh, get to camp, report to training camp. And if you don't do that, um, and if you if you come in late or don't show up, then um, you're going to get a, a reduction in your wages. And, you know, Jim Brown, who was embarking on, was already starting a movie career. In fact, he left Cleveland eventually. Um, to embark on the movie career full time, but he was doing a movie somewhere, and he said, "You know, this movie is really important to me, and I'm not going to leave." And what happened was, is that after a while, the fines kept coming in. The letter from Art Modell came in to Jim Brown, and Jim Brown repo- replied to the letter and said, "You know what? I am writing this letter to you, Mister Modell, because I am quitting the Cleveland Browns. I am retiring." And this was in response to, well, if you don't report to training camp or if you don't, um, if you don't, if you come in here late, you're going to be docked money. And Jim Brown said, well, fair enough. I'm retiring. How's that? And so Jim Brown wrote this letter and he retired from the game of the NFL. So he was done with it. And he said, my movie career and the things I want to do in the future are much more important than being at training camp, than reporting uh, to camp and wherever. And so I'm going to retire. Now, look, I'm a man of my word. I'm a man of principle. I'm paraphrasing the letter he wrote. And I know that you are as well. And my manhood is important to me. And my manhood is as important to me as yours is to you, Mr. Modell. I mean, Jim Brown didn't back down, put it that way, from the kinds of things that he came across in his life when it came to, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do the other. And Jim Brown was not someone to be toyed with or messed with. And look, again, I am not endorsing any of the incorrect things he's done. I I stand full square against those. What I'm speaking about here is about the way that he handled himself when authorities or figures of power would dare challenge him and tell him, you know, look, look, young Negro, you have to go and report to camp. And Jim Brown was having none of that. Jim Brown was a very honest person, very open in terms of how he felt about things. He would not shy away from a microphone and say what he had to say. In fact, if you read his book, his memoir, Out of Bounds, which is pretty hard to find if you if you want to look for it, but you can, it's it's around, but it's it's, it's not exactly all over the bookshelves. Um, and I bet you now, if you tried to buy it, it would probably cost a lot more than ordinarily than it would have cost um, bef- you know, at the beginning of last week. But Out of Bounds was a memoir, was a no-hold. It really should have been called No Holds Barred because Out of Bounds, Jim Brown's memoir, is absolutely no holds barred. He talks about everything. 
And so I would urge you, dear listener, to read Out of Bounds by Jim Brown. And as I say, he did embark on a movie career, and of course, famously in such films as 100 Rifles with Raquel Welsh, um, a, a few steamy scenes in that film. Um, you also had him in a film called The Dirty Dozen. I'm sure, dear listener, if you are of a certain age, you will remember The Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin and a whole lot of other people. Jim Brown was part of that illustrious cast. And of course, Jim Brown starred in other films, including some in the black, the so-called black exploitation era in the 1970s. And he starred in more recent films back in 1999, the film Any Given Sunday alongside Al Pacino. And in a documentary from Spike Lee, just three years after that in 2002, entitled Jim Brown, All American. Jim Brown has passed away at the age of 87. He passed away on Thursday night, just this past week in Los Angeles. And so um, it is sad that he is no longer with us and he really will be missed, sorely missed. You know, he's one of the last athletes out there who stands up and does the right thing in terms of his activism. He was one of those last few. You know, today there's really only one or two athletes I can think of who are very much out front with what they're talking about. One of them obviously is Colin Kaepernick, who is no longer playing in the NFL. And the other one is LeBron James in the NBA. Those are the two athletes I can think of, two male athletes. I'm trying to think about the female athletes out there. I suppose the one that you can think of is Megan Rapinoe or Rapinoe, Megan Rapinoe, um, who plays, of course, for the U.S. national team. But apart from her, um, I really can't think of anyone else. You might say Brittany Griner now because after what happened to her um, in Russia and all of the all of that kind of madness that happened to her, she's become a much more outspoken advocate as well. And I don't like that word outspoken, but, you know, uh, she's someone who is will speak up about injustices. And, you know, obviously after her release earlier last year from um, from Russia, from a really horrible place um, that she's being held in. Um, it's good that uh, she is now finding her voice and amplifying it even more. So you really have only a few people now that I can think of who will speak up on the, whether it's male or female athletes, you really can't think. And you might say, maybe, maybe you might say someone like a Serena or Venus, but they do a lot of their work behind the scenes. They do a lot of that work behind this thing, the humanitarian work to try to get equal pay. Venus Williams was very much a part of that. Billy, uh, Billy Jean King is someone who we know uh, in her heyday. And again, I, another word I shouldn't really be using. I don't, don't, I'm not a fan of that word either. But when she was playing tennis, she would speak up and speak out often about sexism and bias. And also, you know, she would talk about a lot of things around those issues, Martina Navratilova as well. So there are a few, but none of those persons I've mentioned, maybe aside from Colin Kaepernick, but none of those persons I've mentioned, and LeBron James has said in the NBA, but none of those persons, aside from, you know, maybe Kaepernick at the minute, are and were as outspoken as Jim Brown. You know, you've got to remember, Jim Brown comes from the era of what happened, of course, in Mexico City in 1968. You've got to remember that. We had Tommy, um, 
John Carlos, I'm sorry, geez, my goodness, my memory now is really, really going off the charts. But I now have forgotten the, the name of the other, one of those two brothers, Tommy and John, John Carlos and Tommy, and I forget his last name, I can't believe that. But those two brothers who got on the Olympic stand there at Mexico City and gave you the black fists, black power salute with their black gloves on their fists as the national anthem was playing, the U.S. national anthem, um, these brothers paid a huge price for standing up and standing tall and speaking up and speaking out. And this is during the era of Vietnam. This is during the era of civil rights and the attack on civil rights and the attack on black folk in this country. And so Jim Brown comes from that era. Jim Brown comes from an era of people protesting a protest movement, a human rights movement where people were out there trying to get a better way forward and to make things better. Now, let me just get you the name. It's Tommy Smith and John Carlos. See, I couldn't remember his last name. It's just killing me. Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And remember that in 1968. And look, that's the era that Mr. Mr. Brown comes from. Jim Brown. Um, one of the all-time greats. And I'm telling you, um, Jim Brown is really somebody who manifested pride, confidence, and uh, really did do things that I think bettered um, people and bettered black men particularly. Again, like I said, there are other things I was not a fan of with Jim Brown, including, of course, him meeting with the piece of garbage in the White House. That's one of the things that he did late on in his life a few years ago. And I was scratching my head wondering, what is Jim Brown doing there? Um, but look, uh, overall taken together at large, Jim Brown, as I said, did much more good than bad. And so um, I just want to take this time to remember Jim Brown and to uh, you know salute Jim Brown. Um, and say that he will be sorely missed. He really was one of the difference makers in this world. And of course, um, uh, my deepest condolences to his, uh, to his wife and to their family. Rest in power, Jim Brown. Well, good evening, everyone. Before turning the important work we accomplished here at the G7, I uh, want to take a few minutes addressing the budget negotiations that I'm heading back home to, uh, to deal with. Before I left for this trip, I met with all four congressional leaders, and we agreed the only way to move forward was in a bipartisan agreement. <clears throat> and we've, I've done my part. We put forward a proposal to cut spending by more than a trillion dollars. On top of the nearly $3 trillion in deficit reduction that I previously proposed through the combination of spending cuts and new revenues. Now it's time for the other side to move their, from their extreme positions because much of what they've already proposed is simply, uh, quite frankly, unacceptable. And so let me be clear. I'm not going to agree to a deal that protects, for example, $30 billion tax break for the oil industry which made $200 billion last year. They don't need an incentive of another $30 billion. While putting health care of 21 million Americans at risk by going after Medicaid. 
I'm not going to agree to a deal that protects $200 billion in excess payments for pharmaceutical industries and refusing to count that while cutting over 100,000 school teachers and, and, uh, and assistance jobs, 30,000 law enforcement officers, jobs cut across the, the entire uh, United States of America. I'm not going to agree to a deal that protects wealthy tax sheets and crypto traders while putting food assistance at risk for nearly 100, well, I assume nearly 1 million Americans. And it's time for Republicans to accept that there is no bipartisan deal to be made solely, solely on their partisan terms. They have to move as well. All four congressional leaders agree with me that, def that default is not, let me say it again, default is not an option. And I expect each of the I expect each of these leaders, excuse me, <clears throat> to live up to that commitment. America has never defaulted, never defaulted on our debt, and it never will. And that was President Biden earlier today in Hiroshima, Japan. Hiroshima, Hiroshima, Japan, and he was giving a press conference at the conclusion of the G7 summit that had been going on in Hiroshima over the last few days and concluded today. So again, the debt ceiling, this is the thing that is that is being held up by the Republicans. The Republicans continue to do this kind of garbage a year ahead of the election. And what they're going to try to do is say, well, look, this is what the Democrats are doing. They're holding us hostage and we couldn't get something better because of this. And in reality, it's the Republicans who are holding things up. They want to give tax breaks to billionaires. They want to give more tax breaks to billionaires, more tax breaks to oil companies. Why? And to other corporate. Why? Why? And if you're someone who is a fan of that, you're a fan of of more tax breaks for oil and gas companies and you're a fan of more billionaires getting more money, then who are you as a person? I guess you don't care to look in the mirror at yourself. And a lot of the people who do support these fascists are people who are poorer than dirt. They're poor, forget dirt poor, they are poorer than dirt. And they're the first ones to vote for these people who are voting to lower taxes on corporations and lower taxes on billionaires. They've already got a tax cut from 2017 under the piece of garbage who was in the White House then. Why do you want to go vote for these people? And you're poorer than dirt. It's absolutely insane. And look, I've explained why uh, these people do this. Mostly white voters who are poor who, some of whom at least, vote for these Republicans, for these fascists who continue to make their lives more impoverished. It's a sick, sick thing. It really is a sick, sick thing. So I wanted to talk about that very briefly. I'll get into the debt ceiling some more coming up in the next few days and weeks until this gets solved and resolved. Because again, the deadline's around the corner. I think it's the end of this month. And there needs to be a deal done. And the Republicans should stop pussyfooting around and holding the country hostage. And this is where the messaging from the Democratic Party must improve. You have to start making it very clear to everybody that the Republicans are holding this up. And that they want, as a condition for a deal, 
more tax cuts for the billionaires, more tax cuts for the corporations, the oil and gas companies, and so on. And the Democrats have to be the ones to probably properly message this because the media isn't going to do it. Forget the media. And the, and the Democratic Party needs to do it. And you can't have just President Biden out there doing it. Where are all of the public relations people who work for the Democratic Party? What the heck are they doing? There needs to be a full court press on this, not just on social media, but everywhere. This needs to be stuff sent in your inbox. This needs to be on TV. You need to spend the money to do this. Instead of leaving it to the chief executive, if you will, the uh, commander in chief, I should say, um, to be having a press conference in Hiroshima and telling you that this is what's going on. And all of us have to get engaged in finding out what's going on around us. As James Baldwin once said, if you do not know what's going on before you, you do not know what's going on around you. And so it's very important that we do understand what it is that's going on around us. When I come back, dear listener, bad things beginning with the letter W. Dear listener, welcome back. And now the main event, if you will. Two things I'm going to talk about. Things, uh, bad things that begin with the letter W. Well, one of them is Walgreens. Well, I've told you a lot, of course, over the last week or two about the killing of the black trans unhoused person, Banco Brown, here in San Francisco back on April the 27th of this year, 2023. A... Walgreens security guard who was armed shot and killed Banco Brown as he was retreating out of the store, literally was outside the store and walking backwards outside the store and actually out outside the store itself. And the security guard pursued him and shot him in the chest. I mean, killing him. I, I mean, this is what ha- has happened. And dear listener, if you listened to the episode yesterday, um, with uh, with the conversation that I had with the Mission Local journalist, Joe Eskenazi, you will have heard us talk about this case, would have heard us talk about the San Francisco District Attorney, Brooke Jenkins. And you also would have heard, and I hope you do listen to this episode, um, the episode yesterday, Saturday, uh, May the 20th, 2023's episode, you will have also heard some of the city residents here in San Francisco opining on the situation with Banco Brown and what happened. And I'm not even going to give, the, give that away. You have to listen to that. And you will also have uh, heard a familiar voice as well amongst those who spoke on that uh, particular episode. And you'll be able to hear all of that if you do take a look at, take a listen to the May 20th, 2023 episode of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. And I urge you to do that. It's a really important episode. And... The bottom line, dear listeners, I've talked about the situation at Walgreens here in San Francisco. And by the way, it's not the first time that Walgreens has been involved in some kind of trouble or has been part of the trouble or the issues that are a real problem. If you look at an event that took place here in the last, I guess, the last year or two, I don't know what year it was. 
um, would have been about two or three years ago, perhaps. Um, in uh, 2020, and I believe it was in 2020, um, or maybe 2021, um, that was, I don't remember when it was, I think it was 2020, Walgreens workers sued. Walgreens employees sued the company, sued Walgreens. And it turns out that those workers, those employees sued the company to get wages that they never got paid for the work they did at Walgreens. And I'm reading this now from a law firm. Um, their web, because they were the attorneys involved in it. Uh, so part of the, they, they were perhaps, I would imagine, I think part of the attorneys who were involved in this. So let me just read this to you. Fittipelli and Schaefer. Um, it's a New York firm, I believe. And on their blog, they have this headline. Walgreens workers to receive a $4.5 million wage deal. Walgreens employees have just received a preliminary approval from a federal judge in California approving a $4.5 million settlement for claims of unpaid wages. The workers alleged that the pharmacy chain violated state labor laws by failing to properly pay its employees at its distribution centers. More than 2,000 600 workers stand to benefit from the payout, which the judge found to be a fair and a good recovery, considering the potential risk of going to trial. Each each eligible employee who worked at any of the Walgreens distribution centers in California between November the 6th, 2014 and June the 2nd, 2020, who does not opt out will receive approximately $1,200. The class action lawsuit, which was filed back in November of 2018, alleged that hourly workers for Walgreens in distribution centers in California had failed to receive pay for all of their hours worked. The violations claimed included one, rounding down hours on employee time cards. Two, requiring employees to wait in line to complete security checks pre and post shift without pay. And three, failing to pay premium wages to workers who were denied meal breaks. Additionally, The lawsuit included a claim to receive civil penalties under the Private Attorneys General Act, PAGA, which is allowed in California based on Walgreens' alleged violations of the labor law. I mean, this is... This is ridiculous. This is horrible what Walgreens are doing to its workers and what they did to the workers here in California. And it turned out that in 2021, that was actually a finalized approval. Four and a half million dollars settlement. All of those workers who worked for Walgreens here in California who were not paid for the work they did. 
You put in your hours for your work. Let's say you're an hourly employee, dear listener. You put your hours in for your work. Let's say you worked nine and a half hours. Walgreens would round down your timesheet instead of rounding it up, say to 10 hours or just leaving it at 9.5 as it were, they'd round down your hours from 9.5 to 9. How's that for uh, fair employment practices? So you get docked half an hour of work. They take your work hours and reduce them. Oh, I worked 10 hours. No, you didn't. You worked 9.5. Oh, I worked 9.5 hours. No, you didn't. You worked 9. We're just going to confiscate hours that you worked, half hours that you worked. They're trying to exploit workers. That's an exploitation of workers. It's a crime to do what Walgreens did. And Walgreens is a multi-billion dollar corporation. I think they're headquartered in, I don't know, in the, in the Midwest somewhere. Walgreens is a multi-billion dollar behemoth. And it treats its workers like garbage. So that's one thing about Walgreens that, you know, is not very flattering, is it? In addition to the situation with Banco Brown. And you know that Walgreens is going to get sued for that. You know that's going to happen. They hired armed guards, right? I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? When you've got armed guards and you've hired some consulting company, there's since been news that that consulting company has has been fired from Walgreens. I mean, you obviously know that you are in trouble, I mean, why are there armed guards inside a place like this? Why? Why do you need guns to protect property? Unless you're talking about your home, you're in a supermarket. Why do you need guns? Why do you need to be an armed guard? This is militarism. Why do we need to have armed guards in supermarkets or in any market? If you're in your own home, then I can understand there's an exception. And even some people would tell me, no, Omar, there shouldn't be guns at all. You shouldn't have a gun in your home. People have the right to protect their home and their well-being. That I've got no problem with, right? Now, I do have a problem with you shooting Ralph Yall, you know, you 86-year-old, whatever, white man shooting Ralph Yall and then shooting him after you shot him in the head, then you shoot him again. I have a problem with you shooting him in the first place, shooting him through your freaking screen door, Shoot him, you know, attend to, you know, attempted murder. I have a problem with Renisha McBride being shot dead through a screen door by some, you know, white male in, in Michigan. She was trying to get help was Renisha McBride. And this homeowner, without saying the words, did essentially say, help yourself to my bullets and proceeded to shoot her at least twice through the screen door, killing her on the spot. I don't support that at all. What I do support is you have a right to defend yourself if someone is being violent against you and neither Ralph Yall nor Renisha McBride were being violent toward the people who ended their lives, who killed them. Well, Ralph Yall is still alive. Let me, pardon me. Ralph Yall is still with us. Thank goodness. 
But this whole thing about arming security guards in grocery stores, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. Because these kinds of, because violence can happen in grocery stores, whether there's armed guards or not. We saw that with the top supermarket massacre that happened a year ago last week. A year ago last week. And that guard got killed instantly. So whether you have a gun or whether you don't, it ain't going to stop massacres. And it ain't going to stop people being shot by security guards, people who aren't doing anything of any physical threat to the security guard. They're not pointing a gun at them. They're not waving a knife at them. Why do you go and kill Banco Brown? It's the Walgreens. And the, and the brother was backing up. He was reversing out of the store. He was outside the store when you shot him dead. The kind of evil, the evil that pervades amongst the adult population in this country and beyond this country is just absolutely just, it's just so awash in the criminality. It's just so evil. The whole thing, the evil that pervades is just so absolutely, utterly sickening to me. It really is. It really is. But that's not all from Walgreens. Let me tell you, that's not all. I want you to listen now to the San Francisco City Attorney David Chu. And I want you to listen to him and he will tell you a story about Walgreens here in San Francisco. Good morning. My name is David Chu and I am the City Attorney of San Francisco. Today, we are here to announce a significant settlement our San Francisco City Attorney's Office has secured following our trial victory against Walgreens, where a federal court found that the pharmacy chain substantially contributed to the opioid epidemic and created a public nuisance in San Francisco. First, I'd like everyone to understand how we got here. In the 1970s, certain pharmaceutical companies created powerful prescription opioids and manufactured a crisis of undiagnosed pain. Extremely dangerous and addictive opioids were marketed to patients as safe. We now know that was a blatant lie. Prescription drugs normally reserved for end-of-life care were given to people with headaches and back pain. This resulted in millions of Americans an entire generation becoming dependent on opioids. Every aspect of the opioid supply chain, from manufacturers to distributors to retailers, played a part in creating and exacerbating this crisis. Five years ago, San Francisco brought a groundbreaking bellwether lawsuit against every part of the supply chain, including distributors and dispensers like Walgreens, who pushed these drugs out to patients without regard for their obligation under the Federal Controlled Substances Act to flag suspicious orders. They were more concerned with profit than following their legal obligations. They did not give their pharmacists time to conduct due diligence, pressuring their pharmacists to fill, fill, fill. Quoting Judge Breyer's decision, Walgreens San Francisco pharmacies received over 1,200,000 red flag opioid prescriptions, yet they performed due diligence for less than 5% of these prescriptions before dispensing them. This opioid epidemic, as we all know, has impacted every corner of our country, 
from urban areas like ours to rural towns in middle America. And there has been a direct correlation between the prescription opioids these companies pushed years ago and the addiction crisis on our streets today. Again, quoting Judge Breyer, there is persuasive evidence showing how abuse of prescription opioids often leads to the use of illicit opioids, including heroin and fentanyl. As addiction becomes more severe, opioid users tend to seek out stronger, cheaper, and more potent opioids. The cycle of addiction is foreseeable. And from the trial, it was noted that the addictions of a shocking 70 to 80% of heroin users today started with prescription opioids. For so many of us, it has been frustrating to witness the tragedies on our streets every day. It's easy to blame those we see right in front of us who are struggling. But we must remember that some of the most profitable companies in the world engineered this public health crisis. Now, before discussing the settlement itself, let me say this. There is no amount of money that will bring back the lives that we have lost due to this epidemic. We mourn our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers. But the one thing that we can do as lawyers is to fight for justice, to ensure that those who cause harm are held accountable. With this case, we took on opioid manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies. One by one, we secured settlements against various defendants. And until today, our lawsuit had already brought in $130 million to the city. The last remaining defendant by the end of the trial was Walgreens. And again, from the court opinion, I quote, Walgreens gave short shrift to its regulatory obligations for 15 years. Its pharmacies failed to perform due diligence on hundreds of thousands of red flag prescriptions, many of which written by, by suspicious prescribers that Walgreens' own pharmacists warned their company about. The evidence presented at trial made it clear that Walgreens, the dominant retail pharmacy chain in San Francisco, which had a history of failing to comply with federal regulations, filled a significant volume of illegitimate opioid prescriptions. In doing so, Walgreens contributed directly to opioid diversion and made the opioid epidemic in San Francisco worse than it otherwise would have been. Today, I'm proud to announce that we have secured a $230 million settlement with Walgreens coming out of this lawsuit, which is the largest award to a local jurisdiction against an opioid defendant in the country. We will receive $57 million by next June of 2024, and then receive the vast majority of the settlement over the next eight years, over 175 million by 2030. As points of comparison, if we had not brought this lawsuit, we would only be receiving our allocated share of national litigation, which would have been about $15 million. This settlement is over 15 times what we would have otherwise received. Our settlement is more than twice the value of the $83 million settlement received by the entire state of West Virginia, a state ravaged by opioids. Today's settlement brings the total value of all settlements due to this lawsuit to over $350 million, which is the largest amount in the history of our office. This is money our city will have over the next 15 years to alleviate the crisis, to get people the help they need, and to address the tragic suffering. Now in this trial, we have sought to lift up the voices in our city with witnesses from city departments toiling on the front lines of the crisis. The judge relied on their stories and his findings. 
We are deeply grateful to our city partners for their incredible work. And I want to specifically thank the Department of Public Health, led by Dr. Grant Colfax, to our public library, thank you, Librarian Michael Lambert, to our fire department, I want to thank Chief Nicholson, to our Department of Public Works, thank you to Director Carla Short, to our Recreation and Parks Department, to our Medical Examiner Office, to our San Francisco Police Department, our Sheriff's Office, and so many more. Let me conclude by thanking the legal warriors who fought on the front lines of the fight for justice. I am so proud to head up the best municipal law office in the country. We would not have achieved this nationally significant verdict. At this moment, the first and only bench trial in the country to rule against the opioid industry and the first bench trial to find Walgreens liable without the brilliant legal minds in our office. On our opioids team, we have Yvonne Mede, Sarah Eisenberg, Jamie Hewling delay John George, Michaela O'Rourke, Sarah Gutierrez, Julie Van Nostern, Owen Clements, and others. I want to also acknowledge my predecessor, Dennis Herrera, and his Chief Deputy Attorney, Ron Flynn. We also would not have been able to successfully litigate this case against some of the most profitable companies in the world without our great outside counsel. They include Leap Cabrazer, Hyman, and Bernstein, Robbins, Geller, Rudman, and Dowd, Simmons, Harley, oh, Hanley Conroy, Levin, Papantoya, Rafferty, Whites, Luxembourg, Andrus Anderson. And I want to take a moment and welcome our former city attorney, Luis Rennie, and the Rennie Public Law Group. On behalf of our city and all the people who will be benefited by the $350 million of settlements into the coming years, I want to thank each and every one of you who are here today who share in the credit for today's announcement. $230 million. Why would you still shop at Walgreens? Why are you shopping at Walgreens? I can hear you now, dear listener. Oh, it's because it's convenient. Oh, because it's the closest grocery store to me. Oh, because the prices are really good. Why are you shopping at Walgreens? Even with all of those things. I think the moral of this Walgreens debacle, call it whatever you choose to, dear listener, is that corporations commit crimes. I mean... Hello, I'm sure that's not a surprise to you, dear listener. Corporations commit crimes. When you shave hours off of an employee's time card, when you don't pay employees for the work they do, when you put out all these prescriptions and all this stuff for fentanyl and all these things, these opioids that kill so many people and never do any checks or anything like that. You're committing a crime. You're a criminal. You didn't care about any of those things as long as the money was coming in. That 
you just heard there from the San Francisco city attorney, David Chu. And he told you in this press conference that you just heard, which took place a few days ago, just last week, that this was the largest settlement ever in San Francisco. I mean, of this magnitude, $230 million. And that money, as you heard him say, is going to deal with this epidemic that's happening all over the country, not just here in San Francisco, but of course, here in San Francisco, that money is going to treatment centers and all the rest. By the way, the mayor of this town closed down a clinic that was helping people. And hey, presto, this year so far, over 264 people have died from overdoses, from drug overdoses alone. And we're not even halfway through the year yet. 264 people? And no one seems to care about that. Oh, they're drug users. Ooh. They're in one, they're in an impoverished part of the neighborhood. Ooh. What does that matter where they're from? They're human beings. They have a right to live. And then before you start to criticize them for using opioids. Why is it that you are strangely silent when you hear of people in richer neighborhoods doing this? Of whiter neighborhoods doing this? Why are you silent? It's all compassion then all of a sudden, isn't it? Oh, well, you know, they're going through tough things. So the people who are in the Tenderloin section of San Francisco aren't going through tough things? Oh, they look a little bit different from the people in the white neighborhoods who are going through this. Oh, that's it, really? It's the racism that people have in their hearts and souls that gives them somehow some license for reasons known only to them to start rationalizing away bullcrap. Walgreens is a killer. Walgreens is a murderer. I mean, really, that's literally what Walgreens is. They don't care about workers. They don't care about black persons or black trans persons or black trans unhoused persons. And they certainly don't care about people who are addicted to opioids. I just keep selling them and 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 overprescribing and overprescribing and selling and selling and selling and selling and selling and selling. They're basically a drug dealer. That's what they are. Walgreens is a drug dealer. I mean, why are you still shopping at Walgreens after everything you know? Why are you still shopping there? Really not the place to go. I have stopped going to Walgreens, by the way. I do not shop there anymore. And I haven't now for at least a month or two. I want, you know, with the, don't forget, I didn't even remind you, which I'm about to do now, dear listener, the fact that Walgreens had come out initially and said, no, we're not going to sell that abortion pill here. Oh, but you did agree to sell opioids to millions of people and kill them. Oh, but that's okay. But we're not going to allow a woman a right to choose in our pharmacy. Oh, no. 
Mephipristone? No, no, no. We're not selling that drug here. We're not selling that pill here. No, 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 no. But we'll keep selling your opioids and we'll keep uh, making sure that you die from, from those. We don't care that you're an addict. We're making money off of your addiction. Thank you very much indeed and have a nice day. That's Walgreens. And so my question, dear listener, if this applies to you, why are you still shopping at Walgreens? Welcome back. And on this episode, dear listener, bad things beginning with the letter W. Well, I talked about Walgreens in the previous blog. Now, I want to talk about another W that is bad. That would be Wells Fargo. If you bank at Wells Fargo, dear listener, and Wells Fargo is a U.S. bank, it's actually a San Francisco-based bank. If you bank there, you really should stop banking there. You really should take your money out of Wells Fargo. There are a gazillion banks on this planet that you would be better served putting your money into. There are some black banks you would be better served putting your money into. Lots of them, by the way. One United is one of them off the top of my head. Carver is another one off the top of my head. There are alternatives, dear listener. And I don't care how well Wells Fargo may be working for you. After you hear what I'm about to say about Wells Fargo, with the appropriate documentation, you might want to, not even might, you should take your money out of there. Take your money out of there. If you are someone who cares about human beings, you should take your money out of Wells Fargo. I haven't even told you yet what I'm about to tell you, but I'm going to tell you this about Wells Fargo. This is from the Los Angeles Times. The LA Times, the LA Times of March 7th, 2018. It's a syndicated story from Bloomberg. The headline, Wells Fargo is the top banker for the NRA and gunmakers. Wells Fargo and Co. has emerged as the preferred financier for the U.S. gun industry. The San Francisco Bank has helped two of the biggest U.S. firearms and ammunition companies access $431.1 million in loans and bonds since December 2012, when the gun control debate gained steam after the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. That puts it on the top of the list of banks arranging funding for gun makers. Wells Fargo also has a long relationship with the National Rifle Association, inherited from banks that Wells took over. 
the bank created a $28 million line of credit for the NRA and operates the primary accounts for the gun rights group, financial documents show. After the February 14th shooting at a Parkland, Florida high school that left 17 people dead, retailers such as Dick's Sporting Goods, Inc., have implemented stricter gun rules, such as increasing the age necessary to buy a firearm, and some companies such as Delta Airlines, Inc. have cut ties with the NRA's member benefits program. Those changes were largely driven by boycott movements on social media. Banks, which have made millions of dollars financing the NRA and firearms manufacturers, haven't been a focus in the same way. Financial firms can use their relationships with the gun industry to encourage responsible sales practices, said Avery Gardner, co-president of the Brady Campaign, a gun control advocacy group. The organization has no plans to pressure Wells Fargo at this time, she said. Wells Fargo said in the statement that it didn't comment specifically on customer relationships. Any solutions on how to address this epidemic will be complicated, it said. This is why our company believes the best way to make progress on these issues is through the political and legislative process. We plan to engage our customers that legally manufacture firearms and other stakeholders on what we can do together to promote better gun safety for our communities. Other banks are active as book runners for gun makers, sometimes jointly. Morgan Stanley helped arrange $350 million in debt and TD Securities $332.5 million, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Bank of America Corp. and J.P. Morgan Chase and two other banks each arranged $273.6 million. That's counting loans and bonds to gun and ammunition manufacturers, American Outdoor Brands Corp. and Vista Outdoor Inc. since the day of the Sandy Hook bloodshed in Connecticut. Another gun maker, Sturm Ruger & Co., currently has no public debt. Remington Outdoor Inc. has debt outstanding, but it was issued before December 2012. TD Security said the bank condemns violence in any form and shares the public's outrage over the Florida school shooting. Quote, we strongly support bipartisan efforts aimed at preventing these types of tragedies from happening again. In quote, it declined to comment further citing policy against speaking about customer relationships. Bank of America said in a statement that it was examining what it could do to help end mass shootings. Quote, an immediate step we're taking is to engage the limited number of clients we have that manufacture assault weapons for non-military use to understand what they can contribute to this shared responsibility, it said. End quote. I'm going to skip ahead here. The NRA paid $9.9 million in banking fees in 2015 and 16, according to annual reports filed with the IRS. The NRA didn't respond to requests for comment.
this article goes on and on and on. Wells Fargo, and again, a lot of other banks are involved in this too, but Wells Fargo by far, by far, is the biggest, biggest financier of the bank, of the gun industry. Biggest. The NRA and Wells Fargo amended its long-standing financial arrangement in 2014, according to public records, when the lobbying group agreed to borrow $22.6 million in exchange for pledging its Fairfax, Virginia headquarters as collateral. Jeez. The relationship has been profitable for Wells Fargo. I mean, this is just... This is blood money, dear listener. This is Wells Fargo, and again, I did mention other banks, but this is Wells freaking Fargo, by far the biggest financier of the gun lobby and gun manufacturers. That's just the beginning. I've got some more about Wells Fargo coming up right after this. Why would you want to keep your money in Wells Fargo? Why would you want to do that? And dear listener, if this applies to you, ask yourself why. And again, I think maybe some of the answers are going to be similar to the answers you may have gave or given or that I provided when I was talking about Walgreens earlier. It's convenient. It's the closest one to me. The rates are good. But why would you want to keep your money in there? Really, but why? After hearing these stories, if you're someone who is a gun control advocate, someone who cares about gun sense laws, why would you? And you still have money in Wells Fargo. You should be taking it out. You should not be giving your money to a bank that does what Wells Fargo does. There's lots of other banks in the alternative. And am I saying that you should do research on these banks? Yeah, maybe you should. You really might want to look into that. Did you do any research on Wells Fargo before you put your money in there? I'm going to give you another story about Wells Fargo here. And it's from Bloomberg again. Here's the headline. Wells Fargo rejected half its black applicants in mortgage refinancing boom. Subtitle, fewer than half of black applicants were approved by the biggest bank mortgage lender. This article is by Sean Donnan, Ann Choi, Hannah Levitt and Christopher Cannon, dated March the 10th, 2022. I'll just read a small portion of it to you. When Maui's Ricard III paid a $560.43 application fee to Wells Fargo & Co. on Valentine's Day in 2020 to refinance his mortgage on a four-bedroom brick colonial in a leafy suburb of Atlanta, he had every reason to expect an easy ride. The Microsoft Corp engineer is married to a doctor and has a credit score north of 800, putting him in America's credit elite. 
The loan officer at the bank even told him he was probably eligible for a fast-track appraisal. It didn't take long for problems to appear. Ricard's house, an investment property that was his home before he moved to another Atlanta suburb in 2017, is in a predominantly black neighborhood. And in April, the loan officer emailed to say that, quote, perhaps the area is not eligible, end quote, for a rapid valuation. By May, she was writing to say the underwriter had more questions. Soon after, Ricard was told he would have to pay a higher 4.5% rate, even though the Federal Reserve had slashed rates to historic lows. Within weeks, Wells Fargo had denied his application. Quote, they kept moving the needle, end quote, Ricard said. They didn't want to move forward for whatever reason. I wonder what that reason is, dear listener. Ricard wasn't alone. Nationwide, only 47% of black homeowners who completed a refinance application with Wells Fargo in 2020 were approved, compared with 72% of white homeowners, according to a Bloomberg News analysis of federal mortgage data. While black applicants had lower approval rates than white ones at all major lenders, the data show, Wells Fargo had the biggest disparity and was alone, alone, in rejecting more black homeowners than it accepted. If, as expected, the Fed's policy committee moves to hike interest rates at its March meeting, it will begin closing the door on a remarkable wealth event that has seen U.S. homeowners refinance almost $5 trillion in mortgages over the past two years, the most since the early 2000s. It's one that allowed white homeowners to save an estimated $3.8 billion annually by refinancing their mortgages in 2020, according to researchers at the Central Bank. But it's a door that barely opened for black Americans, who make up 9% of all homeowners and locked in just $198 million a year, less than 4% of the savings. Wells Fargo, which declined to comment about individual customers, didn't dispute Bloomberg's statistical findings. It says it treats all potential borrowers the same, is more selective than other lenders, and an internal review of the bank's 2020 refinancing decisions confirmed that additional legitimate credit-related factors were responsible for the differences. But, even when taking selectivity into account, the San Francisco-based bank had by far the worst record among major lenders when it came to refinancings by black homeowners, according to Bloomberg's analysis of Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data 
for 8 million completed applications to refinance conventional loans in 2020. Right. I'm not going to read any more of that article. If you want to read it, the headline again, dear listener, is Wells Fargo rejected half its black applicants in mortgage refinancing boom. That is a March 10th, 2022 article. You can find that on Bloomberg.com. And it's written by Sean Donnan, Ann Choi, Hannah Levitt, and Christopher Cannon. And it has graphs on it, their Bloomberg analysis. And black people were approved far less than anyone else. White, 72% approval. Asians, 67% approval. And Latinos, 53% approval. Black, 47% approval. Now, compared to other lenders, white, 87% approval. Asian, 85% approval. Latino, 79%. Black, 71%. Still, black people finishing considerably behind in terms of these lenders. And it's the racism, obviously, of these lenders. Oh, you're black. Oh, And it's not because we're black. It's because they are racist. The people who are lending do not view black people as equals or black people as human or black people as credit worthy. Even with Ricard, with an 800 plus credit score, which the vast majority of this country doesn't have, is not getting the loan that he wanted. How is he getting turned down with an 800 plus credit rating approval? How how is that? How is that? How is an eight hundred plus credit rating? I should say. How is he not getting approved? The racism of these people, and we fall into this trap, dear listener, of saying, "Well, it's because you're black." It's not because you're black. Your skin color hasn't done anything to anyone. Your own insecurity offends you. Your own insecurity and your own racism should be offensive to you, but it's not. And so you've got people at Wells Fargo who have made it pattern and practice to do these things. And they're not even disputing the findings, as you just heard from me when I was reading out part of the article from Bloomberg. They're arrogant. They're not even going to dispute the findings. They're not going to say anything, but they're not even going to dispute the findings. Oh, you're right. Yeah. If you have your money in Wells Fargo, you really need to take it out of there. I don't care what your justification is. You cannot justify racism. You can't. You can't. I'm going to read you another Wells Fargo story. Wells Fargo to rethink diversity policy after former employees speak of fake Interviews. So on June 8th, 2022. Fake interviews? Wells Fargo is accused of interviewing black and female candidates for positions that were already filled in an effort to satisfy a diversity policy. Joe Bruno, a former executive in the Wealth Management Division, told The New York Times employees were instructed to interview, quote, diverse candidates after the recipient of the job had already been identified. 
He is one of seven current and former Wells Fargo employees who say they were instructed by their direct supervisor or HR to conduct the fake interviews. Five others say they were aware of the practice or helped arrange it. A spokesperson for Wells Fargo tells CBS they cannot corroborate the claims. In 2020, the bank's CEO, Charles Scharf, made headlines after he claimed the bank had trouble reaching diversity goals because there were not enough qualified minority candidates. The company also paid nearly $8 million to settle a claim by the Department of Labor that it had discriminated against more than 30,000 black job applicants. In 2017, the banking giant settled a class action lawsuit with 320 of its black financial advisors who sued the company for racial discrimination. The employees claimed they were corralled into poor neighborhoods and kept away from opportunities to advance. Wells Fargo paid nearly $36 million. So Wells Fargo was telling you that being racist pays. Because all they're going to do is just spend money on lawsuit settlements. Oh, $35 million, $35 million paid out. And I mean, this is what these people do. They don't mind paying out the money. They'll keep discriminating. They'll keep being racist. Fake interviews. So you've already hired the people that you hired and now you're just giving interviews just for the sake of it. Just to say that you are being uh, more open-minded in who you're talking to. I mean, this is the piece of garbage that is Wells Fargo. And oh, wait, wait, wait. You heard there was another thing in that story that you just heard. That there were black employees at Wells Fargo who were being discriminated against. And they paid out money to them, did Wells Fargo. 300 plus black financial advisors discriminated against by their own company, Wells Fargo, by their own employer. Wells Fargo is downright hostile to black people. It's hostile to progress. It's hostile to decency and it's hostile to having people succeed. We're told that the American dream, dear listener, is to have that big house that you've always wanted, right? That's what we're told with the white picket fence. Oh, the house of your own to own a piece of land, a piece of the rock. That's what we were told, right? The American dream, the American dream. To own a home. And then you've got Wells Fargo, whose American dream is really an American nightmare. And that is to continue to discriminate against black people. That is their American wet dream. Although it's not a dream, it is an absolute reality. Oh, but it gets worse. Or shall I say better? It gets better, doesn't it? With Wells Fargo. Here's another story. The New York Times. Wells Fargo to pay $3.7 billion over consumer banking violations. The settlement, here's the subtitle, which includes the largest fine ever imposed by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, allows the bank to resolve claims that it had harmed millions of consumers since 2011. Brilliant. This is by Emily Flitter. F-L-I-T-T-E-R. December 20th, 2022. 
She's written a number of articles, by the way, in the New York Times about Wells Fargo. I'll read a portion of this one to you. Wells Fargo's year-long mistreatment of its customers has resulted in another record-breaking fine and a warning that more restrictions on its ability to do business could soon follow. On Tuesday, the bank agreed to pay $1.7 billion in penalties and another $2 billion in damages to settle claims that it engaged in an array of banking violations over the last decade that harmed millions of consumers, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said. The latest developments contribute to a picture, years in the making, of Wells Fargo as one of America's worst-run big banks. For decades, the 170-year-old bank has struggled to fix its practices despite run-ins with regulators, even as employees and customers continued to identify new problems. The Consumer Protection Bureau said Wells Fargo did not record customer payments on home and auto loans properly, wrongfully repossessed some borrowers' cars and homes and charged overdraft fees even when customers had enough money to cover purchases they made with their bank cards. Wells Fargo stopped this conduct this year as part of a larger effort to clean up other unlawful practices stretching back to 2011, the filing said. The fine is the largest ever imposed by the regulator, breaking a previous record, oh, a previous record, of $1 billion, also set by an action against Wells Fargo. It brings the total penalties the government has levied against the bank, that's the U.S. government, has levied against the bank for mistreating customers and investors to a total of $6.2 billion since 2016 and almost $20 billion since the financial crisis. Dear listener, why, if this applies to you, do you still have your money in Wells Fargo? Why would you ever have your money in a bank like that? They discriminate against black people. They make life harder for any of its customers, regardless of whether they're black, brown, or white, or otherwise, Asian. I mean, this is just disgusting. And I forgot to tell you about another Wells Fargo story. The New York Times' Emily Flitter details this on February 21st, 2020. Headline, the price of Wells Fargo's fake account scandal grows by $3 billion. This is yet another story about Wells Fargo. I've told you about them being the biggest financier for the NRA and the gun manufacturers. I've told you about them discriminating against black borrowers and charging them higher interest rates versus white ones. I've told you about the fake interviews they're doing. And now 
I've told you as well, right, about all this money they keep paying out. All of this money they keep paying out. I mean, how much more proof do you need about Wells freaking Fargo? And I've told you about the consumer banking violations. And now I'm going to tell you about yet another thing that I forgot about. The price of Wells Fargo's fake account scandal grows by $3 billion. The bank reached a settlement with federal prosecutors and the Securities and Exchange Commission after abusing customers. Why, dear listener, if this applies to you, would you continue to keep your money in Wells Fargo? Why? Emily Flitter, take it away, please. On February 21st, 2020, she wrote this. Wells Fargo has agreed to pay $3 billion to settle criminal charges and a civil action stemming from its widespread mistreatment of customers in its community bank over a 14-year period, the Justice Department announced on Friday. From 2002 to 2016, Employees at Wells Fargo used fraud to meet impossible sales goals. They opened millions of accounts in customers' names without their knowledge. These are people at Wells Fargo opening up millions of accounts, dear listener, in the names of Wells Fargo customers and doing so without telling them. Signed unwitting account holders up for credit cards. So you've opened up an account at Wells Fargo and someone at that bank signs you up for extra accounts and you don't even know about them. Signs you up for additional credit cards. That can affect your credit score. And bill payment programs. Oh, really? Bill payment? What? What? created fake personal identification numbers, forged signatures, and even secretly transferred customers' money. Oh my goodness, this is... You get the idea, and you get the point. Wells Fargo is a criminal. That's what it is. Wells Fargo is a criminal. You open an account at Wells Fargo and now they're secretly transferring your money. I don't care if it's secret or if you know. They're transferring your money without your consent? Where are they transferring your money to? Why are they transferring your money? Why are they touching your money? In court papers, writes Emily Flitter, Prosecutors described a pressure cooker environment at the bank where low-level employees were squeezed tighter and tighter each year by sales goals that senior executives methodically raised, ignoring signs that they were unrealistic. The few employees and managers who did meet sales goals by any means were held up as examples for the rest of the workforce to follow. Oh, God. Quote, this case illustrates a complete failure of leadership at multiple levels within the bank. No kidding, Nick Hanna, U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, said in the statement, Wells Fargo traded its hard-earned reputation for short-term profits and harmed untold number of customers along the way. Yeah, exactly. And this is Wells freaking Fargo, a San Francisco-based bank that is a criminal. 
It's a criminal enterprise. That's what this is. Why aren't people upset about it? Not nearly enough people are. They're more upset with someone stealing $14 worth of snacks from a Walgreens. And they're more upset about that than they are the fact that he got killed retreating out of a store, unarmed, unhoused, black trans person. And they're all upset about the fact that he stole snacks, 14 pounds worth or dollars worth in this case, $14 of snacks. And some of the people in this town are up in arms about that. But where are they up in arms about a San Francisco business called Wells Fargo that's stealing billions of dollars from people? Billions with a capital B. Where are the upset customers? And where are the upset people in San Francisco about Wells friggin' Fargo? Right in their own backyard. Wells Fargo's right down the corner from, right down the street from here. There's Wells Fargo's everywhere around it. It's a San Francisco bank. And I, don't, I see people walking in and out. Oh, man, some of these people have got their freaking money in Wells Fargo. But they're more upset about someone who's hungry, who has no home, who has in, been in an unhoused situation for over 12 years. They're more upset about the $14 of snacks he may have stolen. And by the way, he's dead. Okay. These people are criminals at Wells Fargo. They are a criminal enterprise. Quote, we are committing all necessary resources to ensure that nothing like this happens again, Wells Fargo Chief Executive Charles W. Scharf said in a statement on Friday. I call bullcrap on that statement. I call bullcrap on that statement. By Charles Schaff. As part of its agreement with the SEC, the bank will set up, this is Wells Fargo, a $500 million fund to compensate investors who suffered when Wells Fargo failed. In, by the way, $500 million is nothing. When you consider the fact that they did this to hundreds of thousands of customers, $500 million fund, that's a bunch of garbage. That's a piece of let me tell you something. $500 million is not much. You might think it's a lot, of course, for one person that would be, but $500 million for a freaking bank? This is a big-ass bank. This is a big bank. This bank is not too big to fail or to be shut down, and it should be. It should be. And you need to be taking your money out of there. If you have your money in Wells Fargo, dear listener, I have made the point emphatically over the last 20 minutes plus. You need to take your money out of there. I hope that you will. I don't care how good the deal is for you at Wells Fargo. Nothing is good about what Wells Fargo does. A $500 million fund to compensate investors who suffered? That is not very much. I mean, these people are criminals. They quietly fired thousands of employees, thousands of employees for falsifying records in response to customer complaints, according to court filings and discipline, tens of thousands more. I mean, these people are criminals. And you need to start looking at the real criminals. 
Not not Banco Brown, who is trying to survive in the richest city in California. Not Banco Brown, who is trying to survive, who is hungry, who didn't have a roof over his head for 12 years. Oh my goodness, you're looking in the wrong freaking place. If you're looking at Banco Brown as the issue, you better look at these freaking corporations. Walgreens. Walgreens and Wells Fargo as the freaking issue here. And no one likes to look up. They want to look down on someone in this country. That's what we do here. We look down on people. We look down on people. We don't look up at those corporations who are doing all this damage. We don't look up at a system that is doing all this damage. We look down on the people who are in a web of poverty created by the system that created that poverty. We look down on them. We scowl at them. We walk past them. We ignore them. We curse them out. We spray pepper spray and bear spray in their faces as they sleep, as one local San Francisco resident has done and has been caught on video doing. Former fire commissioner, by the way, of San Francisco, would you believe? That's what we do to people who are unhoused. Whereas these corporations, they don't get any kind of attack at all. You'll get some activists demonstrating, but where's the rest of us? Wells Fargo is a criminal. And there's just no other way around that. No other way around it. By the way, there is another Wells Fargo tale I have for you right after this. It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown and civil rights attorney Ben Crump joining forces in a class action lawsuit against Wells Fargo. They say Wells Fargo home mortgage discriminated against black people and other minority applicants. KTVU's Evan Cernofsky has the story. Today, we're fighting the 21st century battle in civil rights, which is one of economic justice. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump on Wednesday announcing a potentially massive class action lawsuit against Wells Fargo Home Mortgage. Discrimination in banking against black and brown people is inherently un-American. The suit claims the bank disproportionately denied applications 
or gave less favorable terms to black people and other minorities. It could affect up to 750,000 people across the country. This was the difference between about a 7% interest rate and a 2% interest rate. Two for whites, seven for blacks. It's time that we collectively say enough is enough. Aaron Braxton said he has stellar credit, but he said Wells Fargo wouldn't give him access to lower interest rates others received because he's black and his home is in a historically black neighborhood in L.A. Because to them, discrimination is big business. And manipulation in isolation is one of their greatest weapons. Wells Fargo has denied racist lending practices and issued a statement in response saying, quote, We are confident that we follow relevant government-sponsored enterprise guidelines in our decision-making and that our underwriting practices are consistently applied regardless of a customer's race or ethnicity. Attorneys in the case are due back in court on May 25th. In San Francisco, Evan Sarnofsky, KTVU, Fox 2 News. That, dear listener, was just last week. Attorney Ben Crump, and you heard him, the former San Francisco mayor, Willie Brown, holding a press conference to announce a multi-billion dollar lawsuit against Wells Fargo. And on this occasion, it's the percentage of interest that each applicant is being given based on race. This is different from the issue I talked about earlier, where Wells Fargo was outright rejecting half of its black applicants, more than half of them. This now is about, now we're going to give white people 2% interest rates and black people 7% interest rates. That's what they're doing. And I kind of tipped my hand a few minutes ago when I said about the interest rates. But this is the story. This is just last week. I mean, this is what Wells Fargo does. They are criminals. And by the way, John Yoon of the New York Times, he wrote about this just last week, about Wells Fargo, um, by the way. And again, this is something different. This is something different from what the situation is with Ben Crump, he's suing for $3 billion on behalf of a class, at least at least $3 billion on behalf of a class action suit for a class action suit against Wells Fargo with these different interest rates. So they're continuing their pattern, their history of racist discrimination, racial discrimination against black and brown people who are trying to get rates for their mortgage and they're charging higher rates for black and brown people. Whereas white people get 2% interest rates. Black people get 7% interest rates. These people, I'm telling you, are criminal. These people at Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is a criminal. And again, as I was just saying, there's yet another story, this one by, and I was mentioning his name a few moments ago, John Yoon of the New York Times. Another story about Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is disgraceful. Again, if this applies to you, dear listener, why do you still have your money in there? Here's the headline. May the 16th, 2023 by John Yoon. This is in the New York Times. Wells Fargo to pay $1 billion to settle lawsuit by shareholders. 
Headline subtitle, a group of shareholders had claimed that the bank misled investors about its progress in cleaning up after a sham account scandal a decade ago. Wells Fargo has agreed to pay $1 billion to settle a class action lawsuit accusing the bank of overstating how much progress it had made in fixing the unlawful practices that regulators said hurt millions of customers. And this is the story I referred to earlier about the um, unlawful practices that the regulators had said hurt millions of customers. That's a story I referenced earlier when the people having their money transferred about their knowledge. So this is really now an agreement by Wells Fargo to pay a $1 billion settlement in that particular class action lawsuit. The agreement detailed in court filings on Monday, is the latest in a succession of settlements and penalties the bank has paid stemming from a fraud scandal that came to light nearly a decade ago. From 2002 to 2016, bank employees facing unrealistic sales goals imposed by their bosses opened millions of accounts in customers' names without their knowledge. This is the article. Remember, this refers back to what I read out earlier. I mean, Wells Fargo. Oh, jeez. Controversies have engulfed, this is still the article, have engulfed Wells Fargo for years, including sham accounts, improper mortgage changes, and accidental releases of client data. Is it really accidental? Twice in the last seven years, the bank's chief executive has departed. John Stumpf in 2016 and Timothy Sloan in 2019. A top executive, Carrie Tolstet, pleaded guilty in March 2023 to a criminal charge linked to the sham account scandal and faces up to 16 months in prison. Is that all? Only 16 months? If approved, this settlement of $1 billion will help compensate hundreds of thousands of investors, state employees, nurses, teachers, police, firefighters, and others whose critical retirement savings were impacted by Wells Fargo's fraudulent business practices. Stephen J. Toll, managing partner at Cohen, Milstein, Sellers, and Toll, which represented the investors in the suit, said in a statement. Oh my goodness. Have I made myself absolutely clearer than Crystal, dear listener? Take your money out of Wells Fargo now and run. Two things beginning with the letter W that are bad things. Walgreens and Walmart. I should say Walgreens and Wells Fargo. You might want to put Walmart in there too. But Walgreens and Wells Fargo, those are the two W's I was thinking of because Walmart definitely you can put in there as well. Walgreens and Wells Fargo are the two W's I was thinking of and there's others. But these two places are criminal enterprises. That's not the kind of talk you're going to hear on your local news broadcast or in the corporate news media at large in this country. But the articles and the facts speak for themselves. There are places other than Walgreens that you can patronize. 
You don't need to go into Walgreens. You see what Walgreens is. It's a drug dealer. $230 million settlement procured by the San Francisco City Attorney David Chu. All that opioid addiction that Walgreens facilitated. They are criminal. They are a criminal enterprise. The killing of Banco Brown, the armed security guards that Walgreens hired, contracted with. Criminals. The ripping off of employees at Walgreens, having their wages docked, their pay docked, and their hours truncated. Oh, well, you said nine hours? No, we're going to give you eight and a half. Not paying people. They're criminals. These corporations, Walgreens, criminal. They need to be disbanded. Same with Wells Fargo. 170-year-old bank. How come that bank is allowed to continue on doing what it's doing? Well, you know why. 170 years. And these people, all they do is rip you off. Dear listener, take your money out of there. Wells Fargo is a criminal, a criminal enterprise. These people are thugs. Follow along on Twitter at the popcorn R-E-E-L and on spoutable S-P-O-U-T-I-B-L-E dot com forward slash popcorn R-E-E-L. And don't forget the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store, the dash politocrat.myshopify.com and of course the podcast itself. The Politocrat Daily Podcast. Stream, well, streaming, it's, it's everywhere. It really is. Odyssey, Audible, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, Pandora, Spotify, Radio Public, Radio Gaga. I can go all over the place. Any of the platforms that you are using podcast-wise, you will very likely see the Politocrat Daily Podcast there as well. So please share, subscribe, share this podcast, subscribe to it, pass this podcast around. Please, please do. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>